reach out to your builder and say to your builder that you want the tentative construction schedule. And that would give you a really good idea as to how the funds are going to be paid to the builder. And that gives you a good scenario to test out in relation to all of these, you know, number crunching that you're going to do. A lot of people don't do that. You know, they think that, okay, the loan would be drawn down based on the stage payments on the contract, for example. Or if it's a bigger project, you know, that stage payments might look quite different. So if you have the construction schedule available to yourself, even if it's a tentative one, you would get a really good idea as to how these costs are going out from your bank account to the builder's bank account. And you can model some of these things out quite quickly. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property podcast. Today we are going to talk about development finance. We are going to talk about everything in relation to construction finance. What are the key prerequisites in relation to construction finance? We're also going to talk about some of the key areas when it when you talk about how to get into construction finance. What are the key areas to focus on? How to get ready for construction finance? What does lender looks at when you are looking at getting this you know, development going from a lender's perspective or finance perspective. I have my co-host here, Rob or Robert from R Finance. Hello, Rob. How are you today? Hey, Marks. I'm good. How are you? I am awesome, brother. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Love the new set, by the way. <laughs> this is a new ambience, right? So definitely. Construction finance. So very different niche. You know, when you talk about brokers, you know, there are brokers who are basically focused on construction finance on its own. So Talk a bit about construction finance. What is it? Definitely. Look, it's a very exciting space. I guess if we go back sort of circa eight to 10 years ago, banks were lending in this space quite regularly. So you had your big four banks that were happy to do three, four and one title, even in just the residential space. And then obviously in a separate space, the commercial space, there were plenty of multi-developments that were happening. Around that time, the banks started to move out of that sector and a lot of other area, a lot of other players came in to try and help fill that void. So in today's market, the way things are at the moment, we have various non-banks that work in this space that lend out to clients. And then we also have private financiers. So places like accounting firms, lawyers, people with money, basically, that are looking to try and help people to develop properties and still still provide finance options where, you know, the banks have pretty much moved away from that sector over the last few years. And so when you're talking about, you know, construction finance, what sort of key things that you're looking at from a feasibility perspective or what is the lender looking at in the first instance? You know, the first thing that someone picks up a phone call and talks to you, hey, Rob, I want to get this finance approved for X development. You know, what are the first key sort of four or five things that you would look at? For sure. Look, it's in a way is a lot a very similar to what we do in the mortgage lending side of things, but heavily focused on equity or security position. So as interest rates continue to rise, a lot of people are obviously struggling with serviceability or their ability to borrow. In this world, it's not really something that's considered to a large extent. We more look at how are the margins in the project? How can someone be able to finance this and keep themselves within certain loan-to-value ratios? So for an example, the development finance process usually goes over a, a various different level of timeline. So the acquisition of the initial property, whether that be vacant land or property with an existing security, the idea of being able to demolish that existing security, applying for you know development approval through the council, and then basically going through the process of organizing a builder and constructing project. Now, at various stages during that project, there are different margins that the clients need to stay within. The land acquisition part usually starts at the lowest point of time, where banks or private financiers tend to sit at a 
60 to 65% LVR, depending on the project. And then once we're doing development, those LVRs can be increased. But as a caveat to that, I guess, is what that value of that project will be at different periods of time can change quite a lot. So it's an interesting one where we need to sort of, I guess, understand the client's cash position very strongly at the start. A lot of people obviously go into these things thinking, look, there's a lot of opportunity for us to make a lot of money. You know, once we get to the end stage of construction, our LVRs or our position is going to be very strong. But I guess the, the trap is to make sure that you have cash to cover yourself during those periods so you can make sure that you can get that healthy profit. Yeah. yeah. And look, I mean, typically a lot of the time when a person is planning to do a development, especially, you know, people who are entering into this space for the first time, right? They don't have detailed feasibilities. You know, they are crunching numbers in their head or at the back of a tissue or an envelope, right? Uh, and that's where it becomes really tricky. A side that, you know, may work at high level, as soon as you start, you know, going into a bit more detail, put the feasibility, put the contingencies in, you realize that, you know, you're not hitting that 20% margin on cost, right? And so from a lender's perspective, of course, it creates a lot of risk. From an owner-occupier perspective or from a person who is doing a development, they'd be like, oh, the market would get there or, oh, you know, people will start paying that price or, hey, I can hold this. And we'll talk about some of these things as to how to navigate through some of these construction finance side of things. What's uh, the feasibility side of things? So really, really important to have a detailed feasibility or a broker to basically, you know, get a term sheet for you, right? 100%. Look, that's the first step. When, we're approach- when clients are approaching us, the first question that I will ask will be, show us your feasibility. Those are the things that we will present to lenders in first instance. So to show that one, our client has obviously done the research into the project, that's essential. And the second thing is, I guess, when we look at a feasibility, we understand that the client may be being ambitious or the client might be being skeptical in terms of where the market is. We need to make sure that we understand those figures in the most detail for the market that they're buying or constructing it. And when we present those figures to the lender, the lender relies on those things in first instance to determine things like, I guess, the indicative working towards valuations, understanding the client's position in terms of cash to cover contingencies or covering interest. So that's a really a first step in any development finance. And I guess there's, I've seen various feasibilities that have been presented by a variety of different clients. Some go into a lot of detail, some go into a little bit of detail, some put their own flavor into it. I guess this is the, the artist when the developer comes into play on how they play this game to be able to present their project in the best way. Yeah. So yeah, it's... yeah key step, I think, Definitely. before you even start anything. And there's various calculators online, but some of the most successful ones that I've seen are actually people that have constructed their own and, you know, really understand the process over years of basically owning this habit. Definitely. And ultimately, when you're talking about the feasibilities, the next step is you present that feasibility, you get a term sheet coming back to you, right? That term sheet would have a lot of numbers on it, right? And that's where the real sort of magic starts happening because then People are using that term sheet to go sussing out, you know, better rates or better conditions. Let's talk about that, right? There is a lot of landmine when it comes to term sheets because, you know, there are things like establishment fees and line fees and, you know, various different margins and the cost that comes in through with that. Let's talk a bit about that. Of course. Look, I mean, there's not a lot of uniformity in this place. Yeah. Obviously, with standard banks over the years, like your big four banks, etc., banks have tried to make their products apples to apples to each other just to make it easier for people to compare. In the development phase, there is no regulation to that extent where people are forced to conform to a specific standard. Obviously, if everybody's marketing their product, they're trying to present the same way, but it's important to go through your term sheet in detail and understand all of the different costs. Obviously, things like establishment fee or risk fee are 
are pretty standard and pretty comfortable for people to understand. But things like line fees, understanding whether the the lender is going to funders at each stage of their progress payment or if they're going to be having the funds in reserve for the development project is quite important, um, especially over the last sort of, I'd say, 18 to 24 months where interest rates have been on the rise. A lot of people look at this and think it doesn't really affect the development side of things, but the people that are funding your loads for development are also looking at trying to make profit themselves. Definitely. So whether there's a consideration to be able to go to a safer asset class or like termed bonds or interest rate savings accounts, basically, they may decide to move out of this sector if they're able to get a healthy percentage, which means that it makes it harder to get development finance. There's been a lot of reductions in LBRs, not just because of the uh, reduction, uh, the cost of construction blowing up and valuations being a little different, but also because some of these investors have looked at alternative ways for them to return funds. Definitely. So being able to understand your term sheet in detail, we'll probably go to the lawyer side of things a little bit down the track where that is reviewed at the time, usually by the will be by the client's lawyer. And that's where it is an option for you to be able to discuss those things and look at those fees and negotiate those things, which is quite interesting as well. Yeah. A lot of people just think that's the fees and that's the costs and that's what I've got to pay. But there's quite a lot of level of negotiation in that in this process. So it mm-hmm. makes it a, makes it really important when you've got a, a construction load on the way that you try and negotiate these things as much as possible. Have a good broker to do so. And people make a lot of mistake, right? They always tend to think, and I've seen these developers doing time and time again, you know, they get anchored by the interest rates, right? And be like, oh, I'm getting, you know, 8% or 9% or 6% interest rate. You know, whereas the real gist of the conversation sits around line fees and establishment fees, right? So you might be getting a cheaper interest rate, but if you have a bigger line fees for users so that they can understand this, line fees is basically on the full loan. Construction finance typically with the interest rates is basically on the drawdowns, right? And so the slower you draw down, the less interest you pay, right? But line fees is on the full loan amount. And so if you are looking for a $5 million loan, the whole line fees basically gets you know, applied for the full loan amount every year on an ongoing basis till you have that loan available to yourself, right? And it's capitalized. And then basically, you know, the how do, you, how do I say this? The, the mix keeps getting bigger and bigger in relation to line fees, whereas with interest rates, because it's drawdown, it's not as amplified as line fees. Establishment fees, again, is the same thing, right? You usually pay it once, majority of the time. Sometimes I've seen it, you know, where, you know, they would pay it over two years as well, but usually it's paid once, but it's paid on the full loan amount, right? Of course. And then you get to the fancy stuff like brokerage costs that yes. play as well, which potentially can be negotiated into that application cost for clients as well. So it is a, you can have your, I guess, Excel spreadsheet and have your algorithms into it. But the other important part is that is navigating the timeline of this. Things can blow out quite a little bit if you don't keep it well contained, basically. Definitely. I think it's important to understand each individual project on how it's going to look. So whether it's going to be a 12-month or 18-month or a 24-month project, a higher interest rate on a development finance might be a better choice for a client that is not too sure about their timelines. Because although the interest might be higher, the requirement to have the lower rate means to have that filled in a very specific window. And then once it blows out, those costs blow out too. So it's important to strike that real strong balance. And I think that's Definitely. really important to understand your client, your builder, your project manager, how it's going to be managed to be able to decide what the right lender is and right choices for the client. And sometimes it's might not necessarily be the cheapest rate, but the more comfort for the client to know that they've got that timeline too. 
Definitely. Um, so that's a big part of what we have to do. The navigate. best thing that I have noticed, and this is just a, a really quick tip, is you know once because you would need the building contract available to you basically to kick off these conversations, right? Reach out to your builder and say to your builder that you want the tentative construction schedule, and that would give you a really good idea as to how the funds are going to be paid to the builder, and that gives you a good scenario to test out in relation to all of these, you know, number crunching that you're going to do. A lot of people don't do that. You know, they think that, okay, the loan would be drawn down based on the stage payments on the contract, for example. Or if it's a bigger project, you know, that stage payments might look quite different. So if you have the construction schedule available to yourself, even if it's a tentative one, you would get a really good idea as to how these costs are going out from your bank account to the builder's bank account. And you can model some of these things out quite quickly. GRV, I think that's the, that's the next in line. A gross realized value, and everyone talks about gross realized value. Help people understand that LVRs on a normal property is very different to LVRs on development finance. Sure. As mentioned before, there's various stages that the valuation becomes imperative. So when you mine the initial site, you know, obviously have a lend that you can do against. And that's very clear for people. It's what I paid for the site. So if I bought a block of land or a block of land with a house on it, $2 million, it's worth $2 million. Where things start to change is as you're going down that pathway for construction. So you might be spending $3 million to do a construction on that property. And the goal is that when you sell whatever's going to be on the land, let's say, for example, we've got a block of land that we purchased for $2 million, spending $3 million on construction, and we're building eight townhouses. And we assume that those eight townhouses are going to be worth about a million at the end of it. So we've got about an $8 million value, basically. Most people will go, okay, cool. I've got $8 million worth of security. Banks are saying that I'm going to be able to lend 70 or the private lender is saying I'm going to be able to lend 70% of that. That's $5.6 million. Bang, bang. Not quite the case. So obviously you've got $8 million worth of uh, constructed value at the end. And depending on if our valuers line up and support that price, especially in a market where property prices are fluctuating and you're looking forward into the market 12 months from now on what you are estimating you're going to get for the property, whereas the valuer is valuing it in today's market as opposed to what it's going to look like future point of value. Then you're obviously backing out the GST, that valuation. So if you've got an $8 million end value, we're taking out 800000 So we're back down to $7.2 million. And then we're obviously potentially lending 65 or 70% of that value. Then you've got an amount. But then from that amount, let's say we're doing calculator basically, but let's just say we're lending at 65% of that project end value. We have to back out things like establishment costs. We have to back out things like interest costs. We have to back out things like contingency. And once we start backing out some of those things, clients start to see that even though they've got a lot of equity at the end, there's a lot of the money that they need to come up with during those stages of the project. The fun one and the one that a lot of clients have a lot of trouble understanding is if they've got $8 million worth of security using that example beforehand, and then we're backing out what the value of the building is going to be, where the land value ends up at that stage. So there's various stages. If you're taking out the cost of construction, your land value might not necessarily be as high as what you're thinking about. Because even though you've spent a lot of money to, I guess, get a DA and approve this project, your value can change a little bit depending on how much building is assigned as a cost, basically. So yeah. yeah, it's a lot of things to navigate. And I think it's really important to have a broker that's got experience in that area to be able to guide you. I think one of the most important points that you talked about is the land value, right? Naturally, for people who have bought a site for $2 million, they think that the land value of their site is $2 million. 
unless, you know, it was basically an empty land, right? Majority of the times, that's not the case. There is usually a house on there. And so when a valuer from a QS, and we'll talk about QS as well later, you know, doing the QS, when the value goes out to that side, they are assessing the land value in its truest form. And so they're assuming that there is no house there. And so typically when you are, you know, buying for a 2 million and if your land value comes back at 1.8 or 1.5 or 1.6, basically what they are saying is that the, this house was worth an extra 300000 or $400,000. And if you take that house out, this is the true, you know, base case scenario for the land value. This is the face value of the land value that is available there right now. And a lot of people get confused in relation to some of these things that, hey, you know, I paid 2 million and why is it valued at 1.6 or 1.7 or 1.8? Like now understanding from a user's perspective as well, that that's not always the case, by the way. Usually these are the cases in markets when it's contracting. You know, if you've bought a property usually and, uh, you know, you are 12 or 24 months in into a DA process. And if the growth is coming through the area, naturally your land value would go up as well. Okay. But, you know, for people who are you know doing developments right now and seeing some of these shortfalls in the land value coming through, uh, one of the reasons is because the market is contracting. So, you know, from a valuer's perspective, there is not enough sales in the area for them to establish, you know, a, a good GRV for themselves, right? So it's important to understand this. Let's talk about the soft and the hard cost and the total development cost, because that's very, very important too. A lot of major banks focus on hard cost and they don't talk about soft cost. Whereas, you know, when you talk about private equity and development finance, you know, you're talking about all the costs involved. So, you know, let's take a comparison there and talk a bit about that. Sure, sure. So your soft costs relate to things outside of your building contract, things that people, I guess, there's many things to navigate here, but all of those other costs that come up as part of doing the construction finance, whether it's hiring your architects or, you know, going to town planning or fighting with VCAT uh, and all of those fun stuff to get that development finance. Hard costs are obviously your building costs, general stuff that's going to come along as part of the process, and things that add material value to the property, basically. All of these soft costs are actually not things that add value to the property, so they're not things like your frame or your slab, etc., but they're imperative to be able to get your construction finance. So without both the soft and hard costs, you wouldn't be able to get the project done. Total development costs basically is the amalgamation of these two costs, basically, and Private funders will look at total development costs, but they won't assign a valuation to your soft costs because they're not actually adding anything that the bank can sell to be able to pay off the loan if things go pear-shaped. So those are the important that I guess people look at it and go, well, I need to do this to be able to do the build, but it's the same thing like stamp duty when you acquire a property. Yes, it's a cost to buy a house, but it doesn't add value to the house. It's just something that you have to incur to be able to acquire that property basically. So it's important to navigate both of those things, know what you can lend against and what you can't lend against, be able to determine how you're going to be able to proceed through the construction finance. Definitely. And when you look at the major banks, right, majority of the major banks would basically give you, you know, 70 or 80% against the hard cost, which is basically the construction cost of the project. You know, they don't look at the soft cost at all. Whereas, you know, a lot of private financier, you know, you talk about 60, 65% funding, they're looking at the total development cost and they'll be like, okay, you know, this is how we are going to fund it. And so majority of the times you would see that, you know, private financiers or non-bank lending don't offer better terms, but they definitely offer more money, you know, when they take all of these things into account, you know, especially giving you 65% of the GRV, you know, is a lot better than 80% of the TDC or the total development cost. Let's talk a bit about the LVR dependency in relation to how, 
you know, the QS, the valuation and the LVR comes into play. So for people to understand first, we have talked about the valuations and the values going out there. Let's talk a bit about QS first. What is, who are quantity surveyors? You know, what is the role that they play? Why are they important to this equation? And how does they come into the picture when you talk about LVRs and valuation? Sure. So the QS job is basically to check the building contract to see if it fits within, I guess, margins in a given market. It gives the, the lender comfort that the client hasn't got a builder that's underquoted and presented the, for what, these things in a way where they can get the finance, but then if something happens to the builder midway through the project, which unfortunately a lot of people in the construction industry over the last sort of 12 to 18 months are going through some of those challenges with costs blowing out and a range of other things, basically, it allows the lender to have, I guess, a bit of comfort around, are these costs realistic? Is this project going to come within cost? Is their cost likely to blow out? And are we going to be in a position of high risk, basically? So as a, as a developer, it's important to have, I guess, a QS that's going to see things in your way. And that's not always the case, right? There's usually a lot of you know discrepancy between sometimes what the client wants, what the builder wants, and what the QS comes back in. And in an ideal world, everybody's on the same page, but it's not the, not not always the case. I think it's important that I guess if these things do arise and the QS costs appear to be obviously a lot higher than what we are estimating during construction, we have things in play that we can work with. So we've got cash as contingency, or we've got comparable examples, or you know the the client may be an experienced developer that's done a few projects with this builder that we can present options on how these projects have kind of aligned. So it's a lot of again things to navigate and. Those QS reports can blow out our equity position in the sense that client might say it's going to cost, say, $3 million to construct, and the QS might say it's going to cost $3.5 million to house the project. That suddenly takes out a large amount of cash that the lender needs to aside for that cost, which reduces the amount that we can lend. Our LBR margins obviously are maintained, but the actual available cash for construction drops down, basically. Yeah. A valuer is another thing that we also have to play with within those margins, too, because we might say that the project might be worth $8 million, for example, but the value might come back and say it's worth $7.2 million, $7 million. And then once we back out the GST from that price point, we're then in a different position from our margins, basically. And these are, again, where we need to make sure we've got liquid cash for contingency or work with lenders that are happier to work with higher metrics. And it might mean that we have to change gears at different points of the project. So I think what we like to do is at this initial stage, understand how much of margins we have at different stages hmm. and then determine the lender base on that. So we've got something that's got plenty of equity and plenty of margin. We go to a lender that's more comfortable to play in, you know, a, a smaller range of LBRs. And then we know our project is quite, not thin, I don't use that word, but could at various stages be appearing to a lender to be quite thin? We might consider someone that lend at higher metrics because they believe more in the project and they've got more in place to cover things as things go on. I think one of the most important thing that people don't realize is that QS's word holds a lot more weight versus a built contract. So even if you have a built contract in place, which is even a fixed price built contract, if a QS believes that this built contract is undercoded, and if they believe that, you know, there is more money that is required to build this site and this builder has maybe no freaking clue as to, you know, how much this thing should cost, then QS words takes the precedence uh, and their word takes a lot more weightage in, you know, dealing up with, with the funding table and what the funding becomes available to you. Same with the value, right? You know, you can believe whatever you want 
from this particular deal. You know, a real estate agent might tell you that, hey, this product is going to sell for, you know, 1.2 million each. But if the valuer believes that you're going to only get 750 or 800 from this each individual unit, for example, then that becomes the word or, or the holy grail, you know, to the lender. Okay. And so it's important that you manage really good relationships with the QS and also with the valuer. You know, people think that, you know, there is no relationship to be made there. There is a massive relationship. You know, you can go back in and negotiate with the QS, you know, have those conversations with builder and QS if possible to ensure that they can see how things are being structured in the building space as well. And same with the valuer, you know, having that information available to you as to what the resales are looking like. There might be sales in the area that are not showing up on realstate.com or domain.com and, you know, bringing those sales up to the valuer saying this is how, you know, per square meter resales are looking like. This is what the quality is looking like. Having those conversations with the real estate agent in there with the valuer is very important too. I think one of the biggest thing that, you know, my learning has been with the valuers is that, you know, there are certain valuers who would who have a lot of conservatism built into their process. And then there are valuers, you know, who are a lot more fair in their valuation perspective. And so it's important that you identify some of those things too as well, right? So, yeah. For sure, for sure. And you might find yourself in a position having multiple valuations on the same site. And that can also be quite costly in terms of those soft costs, but they could be also necessary to be able to influence the valuation that you finally end up with, with the lender that you're going to go with. So we've had examples where we've had two or three valuations on the same site and they've come within 10 to 15% variations of each other. Being able to get the valuer that you're actually going to be moving forward with, with that specific project to align to the other valuation can be helpful too because you can show examples of, you know, this is where this value will add it up. Maybe it will help with your thinking of where things are and they might come up with comparable sales, might move during the period of time between valuations as well. So it's a lot of navigation. And again, as you said, I think it's important to have a valuer on your side. It, it can be a little bit of a, a touchy relationship when you contest a valuer because obviously anyone, no one likes to be told you, you haven't done a really good job in, in terms of what you've, what you've done. But being able to have that conversation, let them understand where you need to sit and seeing ways that you can kind of meet somewhere in the middle, I think is really, yes. yes. I think that's a really good segue. We've talked about, you know, Kwani Sevea's valuations LVRs, valuers. Let's talk about how land finance and construction finance works. Because typically when you talk about development finance, it's basically divided into these two parts. And what has your experience been in relation to how, you know, these stage gate or milestones work and, you know, how the finance comes through? Sure. Let's start on the land side of things, which can be very interesting depending on what type of asset is being acquired. So I've seen anything from vacant land without a DA to vacant land with a DA, all the way to commercial property that the clients are planning to intend to convert into residential. So finding a home for that initial loan is really important because I guess the main thing is the clients, if they're acquiring the site, they want to keep their costs as low as possible. They potentially have a 12 to 18 month fight with council to be able to get approval for what they're looking to do. So acquiring it at the cheapest rate as possible is really important. I might shoot myself a little bit in the foot by saying this, but obviously resi finance is the ideal goal that clients are looking to acquire for that initial stage. So, you know, banks, etc. Challenges banks really don't want to play in this space. I mean, if the client's buying a property to develop it, 
The banks are exposed from a risk perspective at various stages. If the clients demolish the house on it and then the land value is worth less than the value of the loan, they're exposed. So they don't really want anything to do with residential development. Banks exist purely for the idea of getting a client to acquire a property. Loans paid out over 30 years, they make their interest and that's it. They're not getting any of the upside benefit of you developing the land. So for them, it's more risk basically. So besides obviously if you know a client acquiring a normal house with no permits or anything like that, it is something that can fit in the resi space and the clients may decide to change their mind during that process that yeah. they might want to develop it. That might not be something that brokers are privy to. So it's just something that obviously we look at in first instance if the clients are acquiring. If there's a resi option to proceed, it could be a really good option. Banks are getting smarter as well, right? So, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, banks don't look at a lot of things. You know, if you have conditions like, you know, subject to DA or subject to this tree being removed or, you know, your entity has, you know, XYZ development, PTY, LTD, of course the bank is, would know that, okay, this guy or this person or this trust or this company is going to do a development in the future, right? So it's always important that, you know, before you sign the contract, you are, you know, taking care of some of these little nitty gritties. Yes, it makes sense to start off in the resi world. You know, you're talking about the raw site, you're talking about sites with no planning applications in place, and you are going to the bank making it look like that. This is, you know, a typical, you know, investment property purchase, and that's basically where you're going to start off the conversation. Of course. And look, banks, as you said, are getting smarter. It's coming to a point where any block size over 600 meters squared, banks are coming back and saying this could be a future development site. So it influences us in the resi side where a client might not even be buying a development property, but banks are concerned about larger blocks these days and these things happening. And especially when clients do things like subdivisions, I've actually had a client that was refused a subdivision uh, a few weeks ago, mainly because of the fact that the bank just doesn't want to have any appetite in that place. And I've never heard of a subdivision being refused. I mean, generally when you're breaking a land into two portions, you're going to have a higher realized value. Yeah. So it's seems like a no-brainer, but again, that's just completely removing themselves from the market. Anyway, besides obviously going down that residential pathway, there are a lot of funders that have space to be able to offer quick funding, I guess, from a, a land perspective that are actually on panel for brokers. So traditionally, people have had to go to direct private lenders or where you know, their accounting bodies or nothing to do with, with banks or anything like that. In our space, in the resi space, we actually have funders that are willing to work in that initial stage, maybe 12, 18, 24 month kind of terms at not overly high private lending rates. It's at about a couple of percent, I guess, lower. But the main thing people are trying to avoid is high application costs. If you're acquiring that block of land, sometimes the cost could be as high as two to two and a half percent of the initial load amount as an application cost. So when you're acquiring that initial portion, the goal is to try and acquire it for as high LVR as possible with as low a cost as possible. Yeah. It gives you more cash for contingency to cover those soft costs in the initial stage for construction. Definitely. And the story changes quite dramatically if you have an application pending or if a DA is you know, in the process or as soon as it basically pops out, right? I'm talking about those people who have acquired in anticipation that they're going to get a DA approved in 12 months and their site has a longer settlement in place. And so they naturally think that, okay, they'll go down the route of you know, acquiring a DA while they are you know, in the pre-settlement stage. And then once the settlement comes through, they'll be development ready, right? But there are some clear landmines in those areas, right? That, 
can prove really challenging, especially if you're going to plan to go down the resi finance initially. So there's a few things that could come up. Number one, couldn't get your DA before settlement, but the DA is obviously lodged. Yeah. And that pretty much eliminates you from going to a bank because the bank understands your intentions for property. You could wait till your land settlement is acquired and then go to a DA, but that could mean that your project timeline could blow, blow out, your building construction costs can blow out, and a whole range of other things can happen. So it's a delicate balance. Obviously, keeping costs down versus trying to deal with counsel, get your approval, not really understanding the pitfalls of even dealing with counsel that you might have to navigate, such as you know lobbyists that are lobbying against your developments. <laughs> I think you could probably speak to more volume around that kind of stuff. Um, understanding the legal costs and engaging people to go through that process of fighting those things. And also, I guess, understanding the demographic of the area is important too, that you're developing in. So especially if you're developing in a state or an area that you're not familiar with, people often go with a purely numbers kind of focus when they're looking at these things and go, okay, that makes sense. But there's so much of an emotional side of things that comes into play with people wanting to develop in a specific area, whether people are going to live. Ultimately, you know, housing is one of those things that are so important to everybody, basically. So it's made emotionally. The numbers might make sense to a developer, but people living in the area and how much they're willing to spend and how comfortable they are with demographics changing and, you know, urbanization coming through, all of these things are things that can impact you at different stages as well. So, yeah. And if we take it to the next level, we are talking about now that the site is approved, say, for example, you know, as a lender, the lender always puts a different LVR to the land portion now and the construction finance portion of it as well. You know, let's talk a bit about that as well. That one can be a bit tricky to to explain. But basically, let's say, for example, going back with our $8 million site that we were using as an example beforehand, once they back out the value of what the buildings present, present to the project, they then work out on what the residual land value would be, basically. So there's a heavy influence there from what the QS is saying, from what the construction costs are, what the value is saying, the values per square meter are. And when we back out all of those costs, we end up that residual land value. So it's one of those things that we need to be conscious of navigating because when we're refinancing that initial land loan to the private lender, we then are stuck at margins that they're willing to lend. So let's say, for example, you bought a block of land for $2 million, you did an 80% load on it, you owe 1.6, basically. When we're taking that 1.6 lending loan to the developing finance, we need to make sure that we can allocate enough security to cover that loan, the application cost, the interest cost, and any other associated costs that the lender needs to occur. So at this stage is when the client needs to make their capital injection project. Because when we're doing a construction loan for development finance, generally it will be a fully amortized loan. So the developer wants to make sure that there's enough cash to cover everything throughout the project. They don't want to be chasing the client up for any funds during the project because if for whatever reason the client stretch themselves thin across other projects, they don't have cash, the thing falls apart basically. So much like any construction loan that you would do with a standard residential loan for a building house, the lender wants to make sure they've covered all of their ducks in a row to make sure that there's nothing that they need to chase up the client after it started building, basically. And this is where clients can sometimes get a bit stuck because their initial cost on how much they were thinking they would need to raise to put in could vary differently depending on how that land value is determined. Yeah. So if we back out that sort of $8 million house and your side value for the buildings and everything else ends up being about $6 million, 
and you've got a 2 million end value for the land, and then you could only lend, for example, say 70% against that land, we're down to 1.4. We still have a land loan of 1.6 for the initial acquisition. And on top of that 1.4, we might need to say, set aside, you know, 300,000 for other miscellaneous costs. We're now at $1.1 million that we can lend out, cover a $1.6 million loan that the client has. So they need to then contribute in that instance, $500,000 basically. Yeah. And they might not have $500,000. Yeah. Or they might've assigned that money that they had to other projects. And, and when you hear, and this is from, from a user's perspective, when you hear people saying that the the project is construction ready, finance ready, we are raising an extra 400000 or $500,000 basically for a shovel ready site, basically this is the money that they're referring to, right? You know, my experience has always been that, you know, if you want to cover your ducks, or should I say, if you want to cover all the angles when you're doing this development, assume that, you know, your land would sit at at least 60% to maybe 70% LVR, not 80% LVR. Majority of the times, the funders would actually take no more than 50% LVR on a DA approved site, right? And so that's where, you know, your risk appetite needs to be that, okay, you might need this money up front, but you might get this money back through the development phases as well. And so, you know, what a lot of developers are doing is basically, you know, putting that money up front through raising this money from the market and then paying this out in six to eight months time as the construction funds basically starts becoming available to them. For sure. And the rates, obviously, that the clients may incur may be up to 20%. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the concept of the first mortgage and the second mortgage and the caveats basically comes in, right? So majority of the times you would see that, you know, these funders hold first mortgages on the property, but then, you know, you have second mortgages available, you know, let's talk a bit about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, so to avoid having to go to the private market to be able to get funds at 20%, some people might look at second mortgages as an option. So a second mortgage is basically a mortgage that sits behind your first mortgage, a second rights to the property, basically. So let's say, for example, I have a $600,000 loan against my principal place of residence, and it's worth $1.5 million, all intensive stakes. And that could be with a major bank. A second mortgage is basically the lender, depending on who it is, taking a second loan up behind whichever major lender that you have is. Let's say, for example, I had my loan with Bank of Melbourne for $600,000. Bank of Melbourne could consent to a second mortgager allowing a second, I guess, against my existing home to borrow additional cash. And that's where the private lenders can also lodge second mortgages against properties to help cover some of these costs, basically. Now, the rate on some of these things is a lot higher because it's not guaranteed. It depends on, you know, the first lender selling the property and then recovering their costs and then the second mortgage and being able to have rights to it. So it can sit anywhere around that 15% margin, basically. But when we're talking about something like a very small amount that's needed to cover a project, maybe say, let's go use 500000 It's It is a lot of money, but it can also not be as much. We're talking about 500000 that needs to be borrowed as a second. And if we're comparing what bank rates sit up, which are around, say, not quite 5% anymore, but let's use 5% as an example, 10% difference, which is $50,000 difference per year. And the clients might only need it for, say, six months, basically, during that stage before they get more equity released from the development, it's a $25,000 additional cost potentially from an interest perspective during that short period of time. Yes, it exposes your principal place of residence, but I guess people who have got thinner margins who need to be able to do this, it may be an only option available for them 
And the upside benefit could be a three or four or $500,000 extra, I guess, profit versus waiting 12 months and renegotiating your building. Yeah. And this is where contingencies play a really, really important part, right? You know, a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to, you know, allowing for enough contingencies into the project, no, making sure that, you know, if these contingencies are not used, they become part of the profits or, you know, excess equity that you have in the land. And so I've seen lenders, you know, coming in this space, coming quite aggressive of allowing 5-10% contingencies, even though that you might have a fixed price bill contract and, you know, you've spent all the money and, you know, you've done everything as per your needs and, you know, that money would really not be required, but the funder would really always force you to keep that contingency aside. Of course. And I think it's just, yeah, it is something that they're going to play in, especially with fixed price building contracts, not taking a very loose term over the last yes. 12 months. Yeah. Uh, it's just to ensure that if anything does go wrong, there is funds available to do so. And we're seeing a lot of projects where construction finance, financiers are happy to go into that contingency to be able to help the project complete. I think I heard of one from a fellow broker that went as high as 97, 98% LVR on a property for development finance because the lender just knew this need, needed to be completed basically. And obviously the valuation is 20% short of where the market is now. It was done you know, in a very different time basically so the lender has the comfort with it but those contingencies exist to be able to complete those projects and definitely. allows the clients to be able to finish the build definitely let's talk about pre-sales and exit strategies i think that's a really really important space too right every time you go to a funder or a bank you know to get development finance the first question that they always ask you what is your exit strategy sure so i guess for most of these private funders the goal is to, after you've completed the construction, get out quickly because they're not really willing to play in that field of, you know, when can you sell it? It's it's not something that they're interested in and it's not something that they play in that space. So there's various exit strategies available to clients. The most simplest one is to sell. However, not everyone's always going to sell during that construction phase, basically, or find someone that's willing to buy the, the property, especially in a market where property prices are fluctuating quite a little bit and People are buying into a, into a market. Affordability is a lot harder as well. But they might not want to buy these properties off the plan. They might want them to have been completed before they you know, put their money down on them, basically. So the exit strategy may not necessarily be sale. It may be moving it to a different lender. So at that point in time, the although private lenders are not really concerned with serviceability, they still need to understand it to be able to understand how can the client exit. Will they have the option to be able to exit to a major lender? Will they be able to move to a lender that will do what's called a residual stock loan, which is basically holding the properties for 12 to 24 months till the clients sell? In most cases, the idea is that there will be enough equity to move residual stock lender. But again, depending on the margins and how comfortable the, the, the private funder is, we really need to be able to sell that story. If there's multiple properties on the site, there may be a requirement that there is 50% pre-sales or at least 25% pre-sales. So to give you some context on pre-sales, pre-sales are basically before construction started or during construction, client has managed to sell these properties to somebody who's to settle on them once they're completed. And this gives them the, I guess, the, fi the financier an understanding that at least some of the loan will initially be paid off with these two sales that go through basically. And they also could help to dictate the market in terms of where a valuer might see these pro properties are worth. So Timing of pre-sales is also very important. Obviously, the longer or the, the more into the development cycle the, pro, the, the build is, 
generally the more value the property will be able to sell for in a market which property prices are upward trending. Definitely. In a, in a neutral market or a downward trending market, they might not necessarily reflect where they will sit. But once there is a pre-sale on board, it will dictate how the value will be for the whole project. So you might have eight properties, for example, you might have sold one for a million dollars, but that might not necessarily get attributed to all of the properties, how you would see it 12 months down the track. You might envision that these properties will eventually sell for 1.2, $1.3 million, but that 1 million will hold you. Definitely. Definitely. And also like exit strategies play a big part is when you talk about development finance or development in general, right? Your serviceability is technically not called upon because your project is basically being assessed. And so if your exit strategy becomes hold because there is not enough money for you to sell, then typically your serviceability would be called upon if you're if you're trying to hold on to this stock at the very end. And so that's the the, the big difference between a successful development side and a failed development side in some instances as well, where you might be creating some equity, but if you sell it, you know, you might not be making a, a decent profit because the GST comes in and all of these soft costs comes in or transactional costs comes in that eats away your profit. And so in order to protect your equity, you might decide that, you know, you're building a four-unit side or a two-unit side and you would just hold it till the market actually recovers to a certain extent before you decide to sell it. Of course. And if you can go to a lender, obviously, where you can service, the rate is going to be much lower than this if you're looking for a fully amortized loan as a residual stock loan. So yeah. that's where it becomes really important for us as brokers to understand our clients, what are their positions to be able to move out after the fact? Is there a position to be able to move to a low doc lender? Is there a possibility to move to a major lender down the track? There might be a process. The clients might want to retain two of the properties, right? So we're paying out that initial private lending funding. We might go to a non-coded lender and then slowly approach pathways to refinance that major lender, basically. Because Traditionally, major lenders won't refinance private debt. It's just something that they will not understand slash don't want to get involved in. But if you're moving that loan to, you know, a non non-coded lender that they've heard of, and I won't mention names, but those lenders will be the, the major lenders will feel more comfortable to be able to refinance that debt. So it may be a wash part of that process, basically, over a 12 to 24, 36 month period, depending on the client. Definitely. So let's talk, let's bring this all together. If a person comes to you, Rob, for the first time and say, hey, Rob, you know, I want to get, you know, this particular site or, or I want to get an approval for a construction finance for this particular site, what are the key prerequisites in, you know, deal funding? Now, what are the first, you know, what would your first email say to them? I would hope it would be my first phone call because I think <laughs> it would be one of those things that we'd, we'd speak about in length over the phone. So first thing I'll ask is, what experience do you have in doing things? You know, everybody is becoming wanting to become a developer, I guess. So mm -hmm. we want people who've got some level of experience or at least have done some research to understand how it's going to work. So that'd be my first initial step is understanding the client, how much have they done in terms of research, and I guess, have they done this before? The second thing would be ask, would be to ask is to build up, how much of a relationship you have with your builder in terms of, I guess, what projects have you done with them asked. Uh, I would like to look at their feasibility understand where the research has come into play before even approaching me. I think that's imperative. If they haven't done their research and they haven't even looked at doing a funding table or understanding their feasibility, you know when you're starting to look at finance, basically. Once you've got all of those things, most of those will have an understanding of what you know, interest rate costs are going to look like, etc. So it's then about finding that married up place of which lender we're going to take to it. 
I understand a little bit about the site. What type of site is it? Is it a site that's got a DA on it? Which lenders can we look at for that initial application to settle on the site? Understand their timelines is really important. You know, is this something that's going to be happening now or is it something that's going to be happening in six months' time? I've had lots of inquiries in the development finance space where the clients are at a very early stage of the process and it might be a year or a year and a half before they're even going to be needed position be at finance. So we can give an indication of where the market sits now, but this place is changing at such a regular basis. I think it's important to be honest and transparent with your client that whatever we're looking at now could change dramatically over the next 12 days. So Definitely. I think understanding all of those different stages of the cycle, being able to work out in our heads, I guess, at least which lenders may have an appetite for this transaction, and then moving forward, gathering information, and then with client consent, obviously approaching these lenders to get some level of indicative. And that would be like our initial steps. Sure. And then from there onwards, I think the two prerequisite naturally becomes, you know, triggering off the valuation and having a build contract in place before anything further can be discussed, right? I think what a lot of people do, and I always say this to, you know, uh, to a, a person or a developer who's trying to develop a site, it makes sense for you to go suss out rates but you know, don't waste a broker's time because there is a lot of value that the broker puts in. There is a lot of time, effort, value that goes into these deals. So it's important to you know have all of this information ready and make that decision quite quickly or later in the piece as to where you're going head with, and then trigger the valuation and the build contract and and the QS, and so that you know you're basically locked into you know going head with you know and seeing what the numbers are going to look like. And yes, you know there might be some instances where you might have to run the valuation maybe twice or you might have to go and have these discussions with the QS or you know come back to the negotiating table and negotiate the rates but that's okay right but you know don't go around you know this is not uh, a preston you know fruit market where you are testing it out with 10 different you know brokers trying to get the best deal and wasting everyone's time definitely and look these deals take time right a broker will only get paid once the loan is drawn down generally so most development deals can take anywhere between 50 to 100 hours, depending on the complexity of the particular, I guess, development, basically. So in this space, it's quite common for brokers to charge some level of contingencies, depending on the complexity of the project, could be anywhere between five to $10,000. And some people will look at this and go, I don't know if I necessarily want to proceed because that's a lot of costs that I'm incurring before even getting started. But I think clients need to understand that it is a lengthy process. It is something that, you know, someone could spend hundreds of hours on it and not get paid for. So I think it is just something that needs to be understood in the market that it does require potentially that cost if you are going to be approaching someone for a complex transaction, even go through the research process. And it's obviously relationships from us on the other side when we're approaching X lender and Y lender and Z lender, we don't want to be just approaching them with inquiries. They also don't want to be spending their hours and time because they don't get paid until the funder is or the load is actually drawn down. So we need to be mindful of how those relationships can be acted. And that's for us to navigate, but for us to be able to confer with our clients at the best possible. Definitely. And that's a good segue. Not every broker is the same. I think there is this massive stereotype around, well, every broker can really do good development finance. It's That's quite true. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting hybrid space that fits somewhere between people that do commercial and business lending to home loan and resi lending, sleep. It is a different skill set. It requires people to understand not the serviceability impact, but the cost side of things, the LVR margin side of things, 
contacts that are available. Since working in this space, the amount of lenders that are available that will different things and be able to work within different parameters is, is so important for us to be able to approach our clients. So although you might have a great mortgage broker who specializes in getting you your mortgage finance, they might not play in this space quite a lot. I've spoken to many brokers and are working in the resi space that don't understand this space, not interested in working in this space, have tried to work in this space and ended up costing their clients a lot of money because there are a lot of cowboy lenders that are out there that may look at the option to just maybe make a quick buck off a client basically. Mm. Might charge them a fee and then not be able to or deliver on it. So as a result, the broker is obviously to maintain relationship, have to cover some of those costs or been in that position. So some people don't like to play in this space and that's completely understandable. It can be something that, you know, being an unregulated market, it's it's it can it can be fearful for people who are used to working in a space where everything is quite careful and comfortable, you know, safe from their from their perspective, basically. I think it's important to understand that our role in this job is not to necessarily just broker a transaction, but just to make these connections basically to find lenders that are going to be able to so it's it is, a, it is a different space and not every broker has that level of knowledge or experience to work in this area. Definitely, definitely. And look, that's a really good summary. Thank you very much. Where can people, viewers, listeners find you, Rob? For sure. So I'm the director of two entities, Rob, our finance, which is our mortgage broking arm. And our second arm, which is launching this year, is Rube Price. And we specialize in the development side of things. So feel free to reach out on our websites, ourfinance.au or rubyprice.com.au in our contact us section you'll be able to get perfect thank you very much and for viewers and listeners if you have any stories in relation to development finance the nightmares that you have gone through with valuations QS and all of these shenanigans that comes together with the development finance world please feel free to drop in into the comments and share your stories with us thank you for listening to me today thank you for coming here as a co-host Rob it was lovely to have you here keep smiling keep investing Take care, stay safe. This is Moss and Rob checking out. Adios. 